Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13 today. Let's just read these two verses and then we'll pray. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 12, says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we do have to do with you. We thank you that you have anything to do with us. Lord Jesus, we recognize you this morning as a sovereign king of the universe. We recognize you as the one who is exalted, who is ruling, who is reigning, who is over all the nations and all things. We acknowledge you as a creator and the sustainer of all things. And we praise you this morning, Lord Jesus. We realize that we individually and we corporately as a church exist for your glory. Lord, save us from being glory seekers for our own sake. Make us men and women individually and corporately as a church that would humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Jesus, you are the beginning and the end. You are the reason and the telos or the goal for all that is and for our existence. And so in our hearts and minds right now, as we approach your word, we realize that we are approaching you in your glory and in your majesty, and we humble ourselves. We humble ourselves to listen to you now, believing this to be the very word of God. We humble ourselves to endeavor beforehand to obey you. We humble ourselves to believe you. We humble ourselves to trust you, Lord. We ask that you would be glorified to a greater degree in our lives. Lord, we humble ourselves and we repent of our short attention spans, our wandering minds, and our self-absorption. We repent of those things, Lord. We realize that what is before us are the very words of God, and they are wonderful and precious and powerful and perfect and pure. Forgive us for our impure thoughts and our proneness to wander, Lord. Thank you that we are accepted by your blood and the work of the cross. Thank you that you love us, Lord. We marvel at that and we love you because you first loved us. We ask that you would instruct us this morning. You'd make us wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil, Lord. Speak to your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we remember as we're studying the last couple chapters of the book of Hebrews, the context. For a few dozen verses now, we've been receiving a warning from the author of the book of Hebrews, from Scripture itself. And the warning is against hardening our hearts to God's word. The warning is against disobeying when God has been speaking. The warning is against drifting from his truths and him himself. 
And the exhortation is, instead of hardening, instead of drifting, we need to be entering and resting. We need to be entering repeatedly into his presence and resting in his person. Amen? Amen. We're reminded that we're to be diligent in that endeavor. In verse 11, verse 11 says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. So we are to be diligent in entering the rest of the Lord, and what impedes that is the hardness of heart, an attitude of life that says no to God, and a proneness to wandering, a proclivity to drifting, an ease of life that is lackadaisical in its approach to Christianity is an impediment to entering in and experiencing his rest. So we're being warned about that. And the idea of verses 12 and 13 as we get there is this. The arguments that the author of Hebrews has been using in trying to persuade his audience not to drift from and disassociate with the Lord in times of difficulty have all been from Scripture. He's been quoting scripture at this time being the Old Testament. He's been reasoning from scripture at this time being the Old Testament and endeavoring to convince them of the importance of clinging fast to the Lord in times of difficulty. Now, what he's not doing in his arguments is randomly plucking verses out of the Bible to support his own ideas. Rather, he's appealing to what is a broad and frequent warning from Genesis to Revelation. To be careful to love the Lord your God. To be purposeful in clinging to him in times of prosperity and in times of difficulty. And the warning again from Genesis to Revelation is that there is a danger, severe danger, I will endeavor not to belabor the point again, but there is an incredible danger in the subtle drifting of the Christian life. As evidenced by the event at Kadesh Barnea, when they were supposed to go into the promised land and they did not enter in because of disbelief. This was the great miss. They missed God's promises, they missed God's provision, they missed God's plan, and they missed God's rest. And all of it because they had been cultivating a heart that said no to the Lord. In some little things, in some things that in and of themselves would have seemed nearly imperceivable, but when compounded were devastating in their spiritual lives. And there is this warning throughout scripture. And Because the argument and the concept and the exhortation given here by the author of Hebrews is directly from Scripture, the reasoning is it cannot be ignored. That is the point of the two verses before us today, verses 12 and 13, that we do not have the prerogative, we do not have the right to ignore what God says. And so we're told here in wanting to bolster his argument, he invokes this argument that the word of God is living and active, it says in verse 12. The word of God is living and active. Now, 
This is one of the claims that the Bible makes about itself. It's a self-claim. The Bible says about itself that it is living and active. Now, when we approach the Bible, when we form a view of the Bible, when we take a position or positions on the Bible, it's important that we understand what the Bible claims for itself. How do we approach the Bible? What do we think about the Bible? What's the value that should be ascribed to it? Well, let's see what the text itself has to say about itself. And then, as individuals, as a church, and as the church, let's allow the Bible to shape, form, direct, and dictate our opinions about it. Right? Don't mess with me this morning, church. <laughs> right? Yes. Now, here are some of the things that the Bible has to say about itself, listed in chronological order, starting with Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. He says concerning the Bible that nothing is to be taken from it or added to it. And then the prophet Isaiah says that the word of God is eternal. He says, furthermore, concerning the word of God, that it is effective in chapter 55, or rather that it accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent forth. The psalmist says about the word of God that it is pure, that it is perfect, and that it is precious. Pure, perfect, and precious, the word of God says about itself. The Psalms also say that the word of God is a life guide that we can order our life according to its truths. The prophet Jeremiah says about the word of God that it is soul food, that it nourishes the inner man and woman. The prophet Jeremiah also says about the word of God that it is a hammer and a fire. It is a fire that purifies and it is a hammer that pounds. We also read in the word of God that it itself claims to be true, that it claims to be helpful. It says that it is flawless, and it says in Luke that it is to be obeyed. The gospel of Luke says that in the word of God, we have all that we need in order to know God. The book of Acts reveals to us that the word of God is a standard by which all teaching and other truth claims are to be tested. Romans tells us that the word of God is faith building and for every person. Ephesians tells us that the word of God is sin cleansing and the sword for spiritual battle. 1 Thessalonians tells us that the Bible is the very words of God. And Timothy said that they are God breathed and saint equipping. Hebrews tells us in the passage before us that the Bible is life changing the book says in James that it is life-giving, and Peter made note that it was spiritually nourishing. These are the things that the Bible says about itself. Now, we must ask ourselves the question, what do I believe about the Bible? You must confront that question. As someone living in the world today, you've got to confront that question. As somebody in the sanctuary this morning who just heard what the Bible says about itself, you are now radically confronted with that question. What do you believe about the Bible? And realize this because there are a lot of different opinions within the church and outside the church. Realize this. 
that if your opinion is not formed by the Bible itself, then it was formed by someone else. The problem with that is that the Bible has a proven track record and nobody else does. The Bible has proven itself over and over again. It has withstood the onslaught of attack, skepticism, so on and so forth throughout the centuries and it stands beyond any other man or any other book or any other claim. So if your perception of the Bible, your understanding of what the Bible is, is formed by anything other than the Bible, then you form that upon a faulty premise. The Bible itself stands as tested over time. Now, what's clear from scripture is this, that Jesus is the focus of the book. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is the focus of the book. And furthermore, Jesus is the greatest religious teacher the world has ever known. A great understatement there, but it's true. He is the greatest religious teacher the world has ever known. Since he is the focus of scripture and the greatest religious teacher and figure the world has ever known, it would be wise for us then to investigate how Jesus viewed scripture. You want to get a good opinion on scripture because some of you are reading the wrong books. You want to get a good opinion on scripture and how it should be valued and approached and esteemed? Why not ask Jesus? And I'll say this. If you claim to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but your views of scripture are different or contrary to his, then you're blowing it. You're making a grave error. There is a great inconsistency in your theology and your reality. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you deride and reject his, pers his perspective of scripture, you have a horrific inconsistency in your Christian life. Now, here's how Jesus viewed scripture. First of all, Jesus accepted the Old Testament canon as it exists today, without any modifications, and he claimed to fulfill it. So the New Testament that you have before you today is, excuse me, the Old Testament is the one that was accepted by Jesus without any modifications, without any exceptions, and he claimed to fulfill it. So his view of the Old Testament was that it was a closed canon, it was completed, it was right, it was holy, it was accepted, it was prophetic, and it was proven. Jesus treated the Old Testament narratives as straightforward facts. In Matthew chapter 19 and in Mark chapter 10, he speaks of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the most Disputed passages in all of scripture today. He speaks of Genesis chapter one and two as simple, straightforward facts. He accepts a literal interpretation of the chapters. When it comes to Abel, Jesus accepts him as a literal and historical figure in Luke 11. In Matthew 24 and in Luke 17, Jesus speaks of Noah in a straightforward, literal, historical manner. 
In John 8, he speaks of Abraham as being a real person. In Matthew 10 and 11 and Luke 10, he speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah as real historical geographical locations and happenings. He speaks of Lot as a real person in Luke 17, of Isaac and Jacob in Matthew 18 and Luke 13, as the manna in the wilderness is not some fairy tale or metaphor, but as real and having happened in John 6. He affirms the wilderness and the serpent in John chapter 3, or the serpent in the wilderness, excuse me. He affirms Moses as the lawgiver in Matthew 8, Matthew 19, Mark 1, Mark 7, Mark 10, Mark 12, Luke 5, Luke 20, and John 5. And Jesus, oh my goodness, what a naive literalist. Jesus accepts Jonah in Matthew 12. He doesn't provide any qualifications any exceptions. He's the greatest Bible teacher the world has ever known. And he simply says, just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days in the grave. And Jesus was literally three days in the grave. And he based the foreshadowing upon that of Jonah literally being in the whale for three days. So I don't really care what you think but Jesus accepted it as literal, historical, and true. And if your interpretation and your wisdom is in conflict with Jesus, that's your problem. Jesus also accepted the expected authors of the Old Testament. He ascribed authorship of the Pentateuch to Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Jesus actually believed that Isaiah wrote Isaiah. <laughs> Jesus actually believed that David wrote many of the Psalms. And Jesus affirms that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel in Matthew 24. It's very popular in scholarship to say Moses didn't write the first five books and there was a couple different authors of Isaiah and there's no way that Daniel wrote Daniel because the prophecy is too correct, too true, too perfect. It had to be written by someone else later on. Again, I can understand intellectually how you come to those conclusions, but I do not understand how you disregard the opinions of Christ Jesus. And on that point, I am not with you. Not that you're here, but. <laughs> Furthermore, Jesus used scripture as his court of appeals in controversial matters. In controversial matters, the final authority to which he appealed was scripture. It was not merely legal precedent. It was not human wisdom. It was not the uh, hermeneutic of trajectory, reinterpreting it in light of cultural understanding today. He appealed to it as timeless truth to settle controversial matters. And he was settling in his day and in his culture matters with scriptures that preceded that time by hundreds or thousands of years. He didn't relegate them to being culturally bound or now culturally irrelevant. He elevated them to the place of timeless propositions and truth, meaningful for all people in all cultures at all times. And he appealed to scripture as the final authority in matters of controversy. Further, 
Jesus quoted scriptures in times of crisis. That was his protocol. He apparently subscribed to uh, scriptures being truthful and powerful. When tempted by Satan in the desert, he quoted scriptures. He acted according to scriptures. On the cross, in that moment of crisis, Jesus was quoting scriptures. Furthermore, Jesus believed that Old Testament prophecy was true and fulfilled and being fulfilled. I hope that your view of Bible prophecy is not in contradiction with how our Lord views it, that it is true, fulfilled, and being fulfilled. In fact, he himself taught that he was a fulfillment of Scripture and ultimately the fulfillment of all Scripture. Jesus taught that the Scriptures could not be broken, Matthew 5, Luke 16, John 10, that they were binding. And in case you think that these things would only apply to the Old Testament as Scripture, because certainly Jesus in that immediate context was speaking in the Old Testament because those were the Scriptures of the time, notice these facts. Paul in the New Testament quotes Luke as being Scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18. Peter says that Paul wrote Scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. The New Testament writers claim that their writings were holy in 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. New Testament writers claim that their writings were the very words of God in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Thessalonians 2, and 2 Peter 3. Paul commanded that his letters be read in churches and obeyed in Colossians 4 and 2 Thessalonians 3. And the early church treated the apostles' writings as authoritative in Acts 2, Ephesians 2, and 1 John 4. So here we have the view of Jesus and the early church and the other writers, the human penners of Scripture, their view of Scripture. What we need to ask ourselves is, does our view of Scripture align with this? And if not, why not? It can't be because some professor said so. I've been in the classes. I've heard the professors. I understand what they say. I also understand what Jesus says. Quite frankly, I put more validity in his words. I understand what the Bible claims about itself. What is your view of Scripture? From where have you gotten it? This is what we believe about Scripture. We believe that Scripture is infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. Infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. Let's define those things briefly. Each one of these could be a sermon series. We'll just define them briefly. Scripture is infallible. That means this. It is incapable of making mistakes or being wrong or misleading or being misled. Scripture is infallible. It is incapable of making mistakes or being wrong or misleading or being misled. Scripture is inerrant, meaning in the original manuscripts, it does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. In the original manuscripts, it does not confirm anything that is contrary to fact. The Bible always tells the truth, and it always tells the truth concerning everything that it talks about. That's what we believe about Scripture. We hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. It does not mean that there isn't Bible difficulties, 
nor does it mean that there's not discrepancies in the subsequent manuscript copies. There are difficulties and there are discrepancies, but we believe as it was delivered by God, literally in the Greek, God breathed and subsequently penned by man in the autographs, in the original manuscripts, it was and is without error. And when we compare the manuscripts that we have now, we see that the Bible before us is trustworthy. Understand that? We believe the Bible to be infallible and inerrant. And where there are difficulties that we cannot come to a conclusion on, we believe by faith and because of the internal consistency of Scripture and Scripture's record, we believe that those things will be reconciled. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't say, look, we don't know how to reconcile this, therefore we can't trust the Bible. That's wrong thinking. You don't know how to reconcile this, therefore the jury is out. Let's investigate. Let's wait. And in the areas where we just can't seem to come to a clear conclusion, let's exercise faith. I would rather stand before God and say, God, I believed. I believed you and I believed your word, and I trusted what your word said about itself. When it says in the Psalms that your word is perfect, I believe that. I would rather stand before God and say that than to say, well, God, here's my problem with you and your book. I'm not going to be that guy. We believe that scripture is not only infallible and inerrant, we believe that it is authoritative, meaning... All the words of scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. All of scripture is authoritative and binding in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Not only is scripture infallible and there and authoritative, we believe it to be sufficient. Defined this way. Scripture contained the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation and for trusting him perfectly and for obeying him perfectly. Everything that we need to know about God and for life and godliness, so on and so forth, is found in the word. Now, don't think that that means that we worship the word and not the person of Jesus Christ. That's not what we're saying, as some would accuse. That's not what we're saying. In the word, we find the identity of the person of Jesus Christ, and the word points us to Jesus Christ. Nor are we saying then, as Christians, all we need is the word and not the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Bible, as some accuse us of. That's not what we're saying. We're saying it is in scripture where the person of the Holy Spirit and his ministry is revealed to us and we act accordingly. So scripture is infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. And because it is these things, we approach it humbly. We approach it willing to yield, to submit, to accept, to repent, to reorient life toward God's commands. That is the way we approach scripture. Call me an offensive, 
naive literalists as some do, but I really would have the bumper sticker on my car that says, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. I would be one of those guys. I just don't know where to get one. Can you mail me one? (laughs) It's not popular in all the churches today, especially in the emerging church circles or at least certain streams of the emerging church, it's very unpopular. I'm not concerned with popularity. I'm not concerned with what is fashionable in the church. I'm concerned with what the Bible says about itself. So we approach it humbly, willing to yield, to submit, to accept, to repent where we're wrong, to reorient it life toward God's commands. But... Though most of us here probably agree with that statement, it's not the view of all the church, as I just alluded to. And some very popular writings from some modern church leaders would really disagree with this. Rob Bell has a book called Velvet Elvis. And in that book, he has a complete disregard for the sufficiency of Scripture. In that book... On pages 44 and 45, Rob Bell says this. Is the Bible the best God can do? With God being so massive and awe-inspiring and full of truth, why is his book capable of so much confusion? Is the Bible the best God can do? Let me tell you where this perspective has gone wrong. Yes, there is much confusion. And there are what seem to be competing interpretations. That doesn't mean that there is not one true interpretation. There is. The Bible means to say one thing. It has absolute truth in propositions. But there is amongst humanity much confusion. But the culpability for that confusion lies with humanity not with God. What Rob Bell has done is elevated humanity where we are to elevate Jesus Christ. And if there's confusion about the word, the culpability and the blame is with humanity, not with the God of the word. His statement is exactly like saying, is the cross the best that God could do? Because not everybody understands it. That's blasphemous. You see, what happens when he says that is that the church is no longer saying, Lord, your ways are higher than our ways but rather the church is saying, your ways are subject to our understanding and approval. And that is a grievous error. With regards to the authority of scripture, Rob Bell has the audacity to reject the idea and says this on page 67 through 68. He says, insisting that one of the absolutes of the Christian faith must be that scripture alone is our guide sounds nice, but it is not true. I disagree. 
I think that the reformers were right when they said sola scriptura. I think the Reformation ideal was right when it said that scripture is our standard, it is our authority, it is our guide for faith and practice and life. And it was for that truth that thousands upon thousands of men and women burned at the stake, were beheaded and buried alive and cut wide open. For that simple truth, that the scripture has absolute authority in the church, And many of them were burned in Europe in the winter when the wood was wet and they burned slowly. And it was for that truth that scripture is the authority in the church under the person of Jesus Christ. And to cast aspersion upon that so cavalierly is atrocious in my opinion. Contrast Rob Bell's view of Scripture with the Chicago Statement on on Biblical Inerrancy. There's something worth reading. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, you could Google it and find it online anywhere, which says, just one little excerpt from it, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are called to show the reality of their discipleship by humbly and faithfully obeying God's written word. To stray from scripture in faith or conduct is disloyalty to our master. That I agree with. So we believe that scripture is infallible, it is inerrant, it is authoritative, it is sufficient, and that it is God-breathed truth. And that it dictates what we believe and what we are to do. As the church... The church, capital C, worldwide. This church, little c. And as individuals, scripture dictates what we believe and what we are supposed to do. Contrast that view of scripture with the views of a man named Doug Padgett. Doug Padgett is a founder of Solomon's Porch in Minneapolis, a church, and also a founder of Emergent Village, one of the sort of founding fathers of the emergent movement. He says this about the Bible, quote, the Bible is a member with great sway in our community and participation in all of our conversations. The Bible is a member with great sway in our community and participation in all our conversations. I'm really sorry. The Bible is not a member of our community. The Bible defines our community according to the will of God. The Bible guides and directs and is over our community because it is a very God-breathed word from the creator, sovereign king of the universe. The Bible never claims to have sway. It claims to say yes or no. To say that the Bible holds sway is so insulting. It's talking about the Bible like the Bible's a board member. So-and-so has great sway in our community. 
nor is it a participant in our conversation. Do you know who is a participant in a conversation? Satan in the Garden of Eden. He was a participant in a conversation. The Bible is not wanting to engage us in conversation. The Bible reveals to us truth and Jesus Christ and the glory of God. And it's not open for conversation. It is absolute. It is the very word of God. It is infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. It defines, directs, and decides our conversations, not participates in. Compare what Doug Paget says to the fact of those who actually heard Jesus, who said to him in John 6, you alone, Lord, have the words of eternal life, and we believe. So it says in our text here that the word of God is living and active. In what way and in what sense? John 6, 63, Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Living and active. In Matthew chapter 13, the word of God is compared to a seed that can take root and grow and bear fruit. And it says in verse 23 of Matthew 13, And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is a man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. The Bible living and active, having effect in our life and able to bear fruit in our life. It is active because it is God who speaks it with the purpose of action. Isaiah 55, 9 through 11, the Lord says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word will be which goes forth, or excuse me, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So God's word is living and it is active. It is effective. It accomplishes something. And because God's word is active, when God speaks, what is uttered is created. In Genesis, God said, let there be, and there was. So God's word, by his ordination, has creative power. Let there be, and there was. He commands, and the elements obey. So then, God's word, beside telling us something, does something in us. It is full of propositional truths. But besides just telling us something, God's word does something in us. In God's word, we're not only given information, but we are acted upon. For the word of God is living and active. In other words... You don't just read the Bible, the Bible reads you. You don't just get a pencil and a highlighter and mark the Bible, the Bible marks you. You don't just open it up and turn the pages of the Bible, the Bible turns you. It is living, 
and it is active. And so the question then that we must ask ourselves is this. Have I been read, marked, and turned by the Bible lately? You may be reading it, you might be marking it, you might be turning the pages, but the question is, are you being read, are you being marked, are you being turned by the word of God? Because that is the intent of God himself. It is living and it is active. If you're not being read, marked, or turned, you must ask yourself why. What has gone awry? What is the root of disobedience? What's going on there? Why not? Why is God able to say, let there be light and there's light? Did you ever notice that God said that before he created the sun in Genesis 1? I don't understand why this is a problem for so many people. So many people reject Genesis 1 because of that statement. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then they go down a few verses later, and they go, look, God didn't create the moon and the stars and the sun until a few verses later. How could there have been light previously? You have got to be kidding me. (laughs) You have got to be kidding me. Please tell me you're not discounting the Genesis account on that. You have got to be kidding me. Do you really think, why, why do you, do you really think that God needs the sun to have light? That's his only option? Oh, I wish there was light, but I didn't make a sun. <laughs> and then in my book, I mixed up the verses and I did, <laughs> please. I can't understand, nor stand that sort of thinking. It is so naive. It is so void of faith. Read Genesis 22, where it says, and there will be no more sun because God will be their light. God is light. And when God says, let there be light, there is light. And if he doesn't make the sun till a few verses later, what? Why is it that God is able to say, let there be light and there is a light? But he says to us, don't do that and we do it. What's happening there? God is able to say, let there be light and there's light. But God says, love your neighbor and we don't do it. God says, don't get drunk and we get drunk anyway. God says, don't practice fornication, marriage outside of sex and we do it anyway. Okay, but that's good. That's really good. You don't want to practice marriage outside of sex. Need to have sex when you're married. That is biblical. Chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that is biblical. If you're married, you should be having sex. You should be having good sex and frequent sex. That is absolutely biblical. If you're married, God created sex to be enjoyed and to be frequent. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is biblical. What I meant to say, though... 
What I meant to say was, God says don't practice fornication, sex outside of marriage, and people do it anyway. So the question, what I'm pondering with us is this. Why is God able to say, let there be light, and there's light? Why did he say, don't do this, and we still do it? Well, one reason is because light was not created with free will. We were. But what does that mean then? If we disobey the word of God, if we're not responding to the word of God, if we're not allowing the word of God to read us, to mark us, and to turn us, does that then mean that the word of God is no longer living and active? No, that's not what that means. Does it mean, does it mean then that if the truth of the word of God is lost on you or a segment of the population or whatever, that the word of God is actually returning void contrary to what God said in Isaiah 55, 11? No, that's not what it means. Even when God's word is being ignored or disobeyed or rebelled against, it is still active and accomplishing. Jesus, John chapter 12, verse 48, says... He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So even if God's word is being disregarded, not heeded, rebelled against, it is still active in the sense that the word then becomes our judge. We are judged by the standard of the word and it doesn't return void because we ignore it because there is a judgment then that falls upon us when we ignore it. It is always living and active and accomplishing. And that's what is meant by Hebrews 4.12. That's the warning there because remember the danger that they're in is of ignoring their Christianity of disobeying what the Lord is telling them to do, to persevere in the face of persecution. They're in the danger of making the same mistake that the children of Israel made at Kadesh Barnea. And what he's simply saying is, the word of God is meant to be obeyed. And when we do not obey it, then we are judged by it. That is why our view of scripture is so vitally important. We believe it to be the standard and revelation and truth by which everyone and everything else is judged. Again, the verse for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the divisions of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's living, it's active, it's sharp, meaning it's able to go where nothing else could go with a surgeon's precision. With a surgeon's precision. Those of you that are practicing a life in the Bible, you know what I'm talking about. It gets to the heart of the issue like nothing else. God's word under the prophetic power of his Holy Spirit gets to the very core of who we are. The phraseology used here is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Don't read too much into this verse for those of you that know the argument within the body of Christ, whether man is created as a trichotomy or a dichotomy. Are we body, soul, spirit, or just body, spirit? It's not a big deal. I don't think he's teaching a trichotomy here when he says soul and spirit. He also says joints and marrow. He's just listing things. He's just doing it the way we would do it, to list a bunch of things to paint the picture of the fact that it goes really deep and it goes everywhere. Whether you believe in a dichotomy or a trichotomy as far as how God has, uh, God has made man, it doesn't matter. 
The thrust of the text is the word of God goes deep and it has a surgeon's precision. It's able to pierce the depths of who we are and here for what purpose? It reveals what lies beneath. If you find yourself at times of life with an aversion to Bible study, to receiving Bible teaching and preaching, and to reading the Bible for yourself, you've got to begin to ask yourself why that is. Usually there is some deep-seated rebellion issue. Okay? And the reason then that we don't want to get in the Word is because it goes right to that issue and it reveals it. It lays us open and it uncovers it and then God begins to deal with it. And usually in rebellion, you just don't want to deal with that stuff. So if you ever, like I sometimes do, find yourself with an aversion to getting into the word of God, you need to make sure that there's not a rebellion in the depth of your heart that is wanting to remain hidden. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And and the illumination that we're given here by Hebrews verse 12 is that a way that God does that, searches the heart, and gives to each man according to his ways is through the word that pierces and judges. Pierces and judges between thought and intention. Thoughts that are contrary to the precepts of God, the propositional truths of God, the way and the will of God, and intentions that are rebellious against God's leading. The word of God pierces to the point of those and reveals those. Therefore, we're we're told in verse 13 of Hebrews 4, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, the word of God becomes the ultimate accountability partner. Because if you're in the word, there's no place to hide. If you're in the word, approaching it with humility with faith, with a heart wanting to submit and to hear and to follow and to get beyond the black and white pages and into the person of Jesus Christ. When that is your heart's intent, then the word becomes the ultimate accountability. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. That's a veiled illusion there that the author uses, and I'm finishing right here. That's a veiled allusion that the author uses to what happened at Kadesh Barnea after they refused to go in. We haven't talked about this part of the story very much. We remember that they refused to go in, that God judged them for that. God said, you will all wander in the wilderness until you die off, and only the generation after you will go in. But what happened afterward toward the end of Numbers chapter 14 was this. They realized their folly and they said, okay, 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 fine. We'll go in. We'll we'll do it. We'll do it. And the Lord through Moses said, hey, dude, it's too late. You made an irrevocable decision. You're now reaping what you have sown and you're merely trying to get out of the consequences of your sin through your own human ingenuity. Very common to you and I. 
trying to get out of reaping what we sow, get out of the consequences of our sin with our own human ingenuity. They said, no, Lord, we'll go in. And Moses said, don't go. The Lord is not with you in this. And so it reads this way, starting in verse 41 of Numbers 14. But Moses said, why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up or you will be struck down before your enemies. For the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you and you will fall by the sword. Inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. Notice what Moses told him. If you do this, if you reject God's word once again, you're going to fall by the sword. Everyone that originally received this letter, every one of these Hebrew Christians was thoroughly familiar with the event at Kadesh Barnea. Certainly by the time they got to this verse, they would have been because he's been alluding to it over and over again. So they knew the end of the story. And when he says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, he's saying to them, do not disobey the Lord in this manner. Because just as the disobedience of the children of Israel in Numbers 14 brought them into contact with the sword of the Amalekites and the Canaanites, the word of God is sharper than their swords. And it is by that standard, it is by that word that we are judged. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. He's letting them know that the word of God is crying fair or foul concerning their ideas and their plans. And that it is moving them forward or striking them down in the intentions of their hearts. I close with what Warren Wearsby says. He says this, the word exposes our hearts. And then if we trust God, the word enables our hearts to obey God and claim his promises. This is why each believer should be diligent to apply himself to hear and to heed God's word. In the word of God, we see God, and we also see how God sees us. We see ourselves as we really are. This experience enables us to be honest with God, to trust his will, and to obey him. Living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge, laying bare, and all of it, don't miss this, all of it is for the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. Every bit of it is that Jesus Christ would be glorified in our hearts, in our lives, and in the nations that Jesus would be exalted is the reason for the living and active word. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this living and active word. Thank you for this wonderful truth, Lord. Lord, we ask that you would stir us up and cause us to hunger and to thirst after righteousness. That you would lead us in paths of, thy name, of righteousness for thy namesake, Lord. That you would expand the capacity of our hearts to know you and to experience you by the Holy Spirit working through the Holy Word. Thank you that your Word tells us that the Holy Spirit pours the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. See, we take that to the bank. We don't want to discount that. 
We don't want to cast aspersion on that. We take these truths to the bank. We don't pick or choose, Lord. We haven't set ourselves up as judge over the word. Your word is a judge. Have mercy on us where we've subscribed to our own wisdom. We trust you, Lord. We trust you with what we can understand in the word and what we don't understand, but we realize this, that there's plenty that we can understand that we're already not doing. So we're not going to worry too much about what we don't understand. We're going to try to do what we do understand. Help us, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. Breathe new life where there is wilting hearts and waning spirits. Birth a new thing in us. A fresh hunger and desire to follow hard after you. To see you high and lifted up, Lord. That the word of Christ would dwell richly in us. Teach us to hide thy word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. How can a young man keep his way pure except for by thy word? Your word is pure and precious and perfect. Work it deep into our hearts, Holy Spirit, that it might yield a harvest, some 30, some 60, some 100 folds. Prayer team is here to help you. Communion is here as well to remember the work and experience the presence of Christ.